You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Find the show on Twitter at Talk of Fame Net. Here are your hosts, Rick Goslin, Ron Borges, and Clark Judd. Welcome to another week at the Talk of Fame Network and Gooseman. You standing or kneeling at the Hall of Fame? Standing. Hand over my heart. <laughs> I, I thought you might be kneeling, Goose Man, with a uh, hand over your heart after that beatdown your Spartans took from Notre Dame in a game, by the way, Ron, that Goose and his brothers sat through in East Lansing, right, Goose? We're a basketball school. Football is a mere tailgating warm-up for basketball season. <laughs> <laughs> something tells me Goose Man was in the luxury boxes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something tells me that, too. Well, anyway, there's a lot going on throughout the league, and some of it actually positive from the NFL standpoint. I mean, games are getting better. But uh, the dialogue is not. And instead of talking about the Falcons and Chiefs, for instance, being undefeated, Ron, uh, we're asking, where do we go next with the national anthem? So, Ron, I'll ask you, where do we go next with yeah. the national anthem? <laughs> let, me that, let me get that soapbox out here. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's a good, no, it's a good question. Look, I mean, this is a mess that's been a long time coming. As you guys know, it's not really about the national anthem. It's not really about the flag, although the message has gotten confused. I don't believe so much by the, by the uh, message carriages, but by... Out the outside folks who wanted to sort of muddy the waters there. Uh, uh, but, you know, when the President of the United States starts calling players names and unflattering names and demanding that uh, a rule be instituted, that they stand for the anthem, but they get fired, me as a Bostonian starts to understand why those dudes threw the tea in the water. You, know, like, <laughs> you, know, you just start saying, bro, no, man. You know, I'm not going to do this. Well, Ron, what do you do when Goose and I start calling you an SOP? What do you do then? <laughs> well, I'm used to it. It's been 40 years. And some yeah. damn, you know, the tea you in don't the water. kneel. But, you, you don't know, kneel. It got escalated, in my mind, this past week, not by the, the protesters, but by the president. So, yeah, right. you know, I, I thought he was supposed to be in the, you know, you kind of quelling fires, not starting them. Well, don't you think that's part of the problem here? I mean, I'm not sure. What guys are protesting anymore? Is it Donald Trump? Is it uh, social injustice, racial injustice? What, what is it? I'm not sure. And, and last week I thought actually it was mostly anti-president, anti-Trump. Maybe you're right. To a, to a degree, maybe you're right. I mean, I think underneath it all, the message for most of the players okay. is, is the same. You know, they're weary okay. of this stuff. But the president certainly did a good job of uh, throwing some gasoline on the fire. That's for sure. Okay, well, I know where we're going to go next. We're going to sit down with an offensive lineman I profiled two weeks ago in our State Your Case segment. And that's former Buffalo star Reuben Brown, as well as check in with former Giants offensive lineman Jeff Hatch. And here from another 1987 replacement player, Lionel Vital of the Washington Redskins. We have a lot to get to, but only after we break for a word from our sponsors. You're listening to the Talk Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Hey, before we get started, guys, uh, how about a shout-out to former center Dave Remington? Yes, Dave Remington, who this week was named the temporary AD at the University of Nebraska. Good player. Good guy. Congratulations, Dave Remington. Well, as we said earlier, uh, a lot of talk about what's going on in the NFL these days, and some of it actually about the games, which is where I want to start, guys. Um, you saw what happened across the league last week. I don't know if you can imagine what's next. So, uh, Goose, I'm going to ask you, since I didn't get a chance to in the first segment, what is next? What should we expect this weekend? Well, I think the NFL needs to get the issue off the front burner. And you do that by taking the players out of play at the National Anthem. You do that by keeping them in the locker room like the Steelers last week. You know, when I was becoming a fan of the NFL in the 60s, the players were never on the sideline for the anthem. 
it was always played, well, the teams are still in the locker room. And I think the NFL will soon be headed back in that direction. Well, Goose, I, I, I'm with you on that because I, I'll be honest. I mean, I, I loved and I mean loved what Mike Tomlin at least tried to do in Pittsburgh. The game was in Chicago with the Steelers. And, and what he tried to do was confine his players to his locker room now. And that was before the game in Chicago, so they wouldn't have to choose to stand or kneel. I, I understand it was botched. Um, Al Villanueva came out. The coaches came out. Some of the players stayed in. It, it, but the idea, I thought, was right. The intent was right. He wanted to defuse a volatile situation by forcing players to concentrate on what they're paid to do, which is play football. And while the results don't indicate it, I mean, they, they lost to Chicago as a winless team in overtime. I, I thought it was a really shrewd move that took politics out of the game. And, and besides, as he pointed out this week, was, that used to be the practice in every locker room pre-9-11. Here's a problem. Now, let me read this to you directly from the NFL's game operations manual. Quote, the national anthem must be played prior to NFL every NFL game, and all players must be on the sideline for the anthem. During the anthem, players on the field and bench area should stand at attention, face the flag, hold the helmets in their left hand, and refrain from talking. The home team should ensure that the American flag is in good condition. It should be pointed out to players and coaches that we continue to be judged by the public in this area of respect for the flag and for our country. Failure to be on the field by the start of the anthem may result in discipline such as fines, suspensions, and or forfeiture of draft choices for violations of the above, including first offenses. End of quote. Take it away, Ron. Well, they can start off by finding your friend Jerry Jones. How about, did they find Kaepernick last year? <laughs> they did not. Okay. But if you want to enforce this rule, then, you know, you've got to enforce it on everybody, which is why they won't enforce it, of course. I think this is the last they time we'll see that it. rule on the books. Yeah, right, change yeah, it. Yeah. Just change yeah. it. Yeah, well, I'm sure they will. You know, I'm sure they will. But, you know, sometimes you have to recognize when uh, the, the, the situation's gotten uh, ahead of them. Uh, I mean, and, and I don't think anymore to locking them in the locker room is going to work. I think you're just going to. You're going to escalate the problem, not de-escalate the problem. The, uh, it, it, the, the time has come for you know the issues a lot of these players are, uh, or the issue that a lot of these players are, are raising. It has to be confronted by by people larger than them, frankly, uh, and to some degree, some of those people, the teams, guys who own teams, because they have a lot more political power than any player you can think of, um, because they write big checks. So I, I think it's gotten away from them, and I don't think that's a genie that you can stuff inside the box anymore, as the Steelers found out. Hey, we got a great plan. We're going to all stay in the locker room, but Al's going to come out, and the captains are going to stand behind him, and it's a, it ends up being a bigger snafu. Al looks like a uh, looks like a schmo standing there like he's in, you know violating every other player on the team. And a day later, you've got an Army Ranger West Point graduate who has to apologize for standing for the National Anthem. So... Bad well, plan. Well, Ron, let me ask you this. I mean, you're a coach. You're a lacrosse yeah. coach, but you're a coach. If you were coaching an NFL team today, if you were coaching the Steelers, how would you handle all this about the anthem and, and to kneel or not to kneel? Well, you know, I've given that some thought because you mentioned that uh, to me before, Clark, and, and I did give it some thought, believe it or not. Something I try not to do in general. but uh, um, And I just remembered my old uh, lacrosse coach, um, who's passed away now at, at, at UMass, who several times when there was these sort of – societal issues in the 60s you know he sat down with everybody we didn't practice we talked we had long conversations about what everybody was feeling what everybody was thinking let air, let everybody air out their their feelings one way or the other and uh and then i would just stand there and say look i'm not asking anyone if they agree with anybody else all i'm asking is that you respect everybody else that's the point we have to get to and for a team i think it's easier to do than in the larger society because everybody's talking and nobody's uh, listening. 
But uh, but I just think that's what I would do and say, okay, now we got to decide what we're going to do. Well, because every, everybody's watching us. How about you, Goose? I keep the team in the locker room and then wait for the NFL to strike their rule from its operations manual this offseason. Okay. Well, we're, we're going to talk with Hall of Fame voter Ed Bouchette of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette soon about this. Uh, but how and when is this thing resolved, or is it? I mean, we had the Seals out, Villanueva emerge from the locker room, as you mentioned, standalone outside the tunnel, and then they got botched up. Uh, and they apologized, you mentioned, Ron, uh, for unintentionally throwing the team under the bus. That was pretty embarrassing. Uh, I, I just wonder, Goose, is, is, is this going to be a season-long issue? I mean, the, the NFL is so good at getting ahead of these stories. They're not here. I'm, we're still waiting for them. Not if all 32 teams are sitting in the locker room won't be an issue. And I think that's where we're headed. Here's the problem with that, Goose. If you think 1,600 players are going to sit quietly in the locker room, you're living in 1955, bro. They're not. They're not. And, and nor should they. But they definitely, they are not. They're not prisoners. And if you think they're going to turn around and start firing players, good players, because they're not willing to be imprisoned in the locker room, uh, you know, that is not a solution. That's and a bigger it problem. Never, it will never leave the front burner of the politics. will override yeah. all football. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Okay, hey guys, quickly to the league itself. I, I know hard to believe, but football question. They played Falcons, football this week? Falcons and Chiefs undefeated. They have best two teams out there, Goose? After three weeks, yes. After six weeks, maybe not. Baltimore and Minnesota were both 3-0 a year ago at this time. Neither finished with a winning record. Ronnie? It's the beauty of the goose, man. We can always find things to agree on. He's right, of course, like he always is about these matters. We see this all the time. Parcells should say we don't play one season. We play four seasons of four games each. Yeah. And the, the team at the ends that are at the top are very seldom the ones at the top. Uh, the, they're at the start for a lot of different reasons, injuries and all these things. So, look, those okay. are two good teams. Okay. No all question, right. but we'll see. Okay, state your case. Here's another football question. Gooseman, does Marty Schottenheimer deserve Hall of Fame recognition? I know it's a subject you took on this week on our website, talkfamenetwork.com, and you're here to tell us about it. So go ahead, Goose, tell us about it. Well, the road to Canton is paved with victories and championships for coaches. Bill Belichick has plenty of both. In his 17 seasons with the Patriots, he has won 201 games and five championships. Tom Brady has been the quarterback for 235 of Belichick's 272 games in New England. Brady's been at the helm for 183 of those victories and all five championships. Belichick's career has benefited from the stability and mastery of the quarterback position by Brady. Find a Hall of Fame coach, and you generally find a Hall of Fame quarterback. You play the hand you're dealt as a football coach, and Belichick has played his hand very well. But few coaches in NFL history have played the hand they've been dealt as masterfully as Marty Schottenheimer. He coached for 21 seasons and won 200 games. He suffered only two losing seasons in his career, taking 13 teams to the playoffs and winning division titles with eight of them. But Schottenheimer never won a championship, so his name never comes up in any Hall of Fame discussion. He deserved better because his success came despite a lack of stability at the quarterback position. Unlike Belichick, he had 11 different starting quarterbacks in his 21 seasons. He took teams to playoffs with Steve DeBerg and Dave Craig at the helm. He achieved the top playoff seed in the AFC with Bernie Kosar, Steve Bono, and Elvis Gerback as his quarterback. He coached 327 games in the NFL and never had a starting quarterback for more than four seasons. His quarterback who started the most games was a young Drew Brees with 58. Kozar was next with 47. Despite the variety and oftentimes mediocrity at the quarterback position, Schottenheimer won 61% of his career games and finished in double figures and victories 11 times in his 21 seasons. He reached conference title games three times, twice with the Browns and once with the Chiefs but a lack of championships translate into a lack of attention from Canton. There are 20 coaches enshrined in the Hall of Fame and 17 won titles. 
The other three all reached Super Bowls. That's missing from Schottenheimer's resume, but it's the only thing missing from what otherwise was a Hall of Fame coaching career. Well, Gooseman, what do you do uh, with with guys like Buddy Parker and, and, and Tom Flores and Jimmy Johnson who have multiple championships? Um, George Seifert. Uh, George Seifert. You know, what do you do with them? Uh, when you, and then you look at Marty, who has none. I mean, how, you, you do the same with them as you do with Schottenheimer. You get them into the discussion. Let the process play it out, but they need to be in the discussion. Right now, they're not in the discussion, which is one of the reasons we're pushing to get coaches in the contributor category. The Marty Schottenheimers, Buddy Parkers, Tom Flores, Seiferts, they haven't been in the room. They need to be in the discussion and let the process play itself out. Thanks, Gooseman. Nice job. And you know what? Here's hoping Marty hears that. He's a great guy and, and a great coach. I know you know him well. Coming up, another great guy. That's Hall of Fame voter Ed Bouchette of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Our first guest parlayed a second chance in the NFL as a replacement player in a Super Bowl ring. Actually, it was his third chance. Hunter Kelly Goodburn went to camp with the Kansas City Chiefs in both 1986 and 1987, but was cut in each of those camps. But when the NFL players went on strike two games into that 1987 season, the Chiefs welcomed him back. He was not only the best player on a winless Kansas City strike team, the Chiefs kept him as their punter when the strike ended. He wound up punting two more seasons in Kansas City, then three more in Washington, where he earned a Super Bowl ring in 1991. And now, well, now he's one of our guests. Kelly Goodburn, thanks for being here. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Kelly, NFL teams were building their strike rosters long before the players went out on strike. When did the Chiefs tell you they wanted to have you back in the event of a strike? You know, I think it was the best of my recollection. It maybe was like a, a week or maybe the first part of uh, the first week of, of their regular season. So you know, a couple of weeks before the strike happened, two or three weeks maybe. Mm-hmm. Now you'd been in camp uh, the previous two summers. Uh, so you knew the Chiefs players. You know, They were your summer teammates. Did you have any moral dilemma about crossing their picket line? What kind of a decision did you have to make? Well, you know, I, I mean, I had tried two years to unsuccessfully got on with the Chiefs, had a tryout, then with the Bears, and, and didn't make that. And so I was done. I went, I started my student teaching and was moving forward. And uh, the Chiefs called and said, hey, we'll give you $5,000 uh, if, if the strike come if the strike is real you get it you're our punter if not you keep the five thousand it was a no-brainer for me <laughs> um i was done i mean I, I my 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 trying with days were over at that point so i figured what the heck what do i got to lose um you know i i, I tried and tried and tried and it just didn't work out i thought it, t- it would take two miracles to make it the nfl <laughs> Sounds like a smart career decision. Hey, Kelly, and we're speaking with Kelly Goodburn, former punter for the Chiefs and Washington Redskins. Kelly, you know, I was out in San Diego then uh, covering the Chargers, so I saw you guys. And, and, and I remember the Chiefs made national headlines even all the way out to San Diego. Yes, true. But during the strike, when a, when a bunch of your striking players showed up at Arrowhead in a pickup with shotguns, then of yeah. course the, there was that picket line scuffle between – Otis Taylor, who was scouting then for the Chiefs, and, and Jack Del Rio, now the uh, coach of the, the Raiders, and, and that time was the team starting outside linebacker who was on strike. 
Anyway, there was there was a scuffle there, and and I'm wondering, did you ever fear for your safety, your safety during the four weeks you were employed during that strike? Well, that day I did. (laughs) 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 We were we were all in our hotel room, um, and you know, killing time. And you know, what do you watch? You watch you put it on the sports channel, and 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 they're showing you know that. Uh, these guys in Kansas City driving around with shotguns in their trucks, and we're like, gee, what the hell do we get into, you know? And uh, I remember driving down to the stadium in the in the, the Greyhounds, and, and we stopped for about 45 minutes, and I go, God, this can't be good, you know? <laughs> and uh, we, we drove in and went under, I think we went under um, – the, uh, in between uh, Royal Stadium and Arrowhead, and, and uh, the, the gate closed down behind the bus, and that's when I kind of knew we may be okay. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly, I remember sitting in the office of head coach Frank Gans the week of the first straight game and him telling me, quote, our goal is to punt the football. Frank knew you were the best weapon on his team, and if you were on the field, that means the offense wasn't turning the ball over. Did you think the strike games would could become full-time employment with the Chiefs, or did you just view this as another chance to get on tape? I, I just viewed this as another opportunity, I mean, and and one that I really wasn't even thinking about. I, I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't counting on a strike to happen, and it was just kind of a final opportunity, um, you know, that came about, and I, I just thought, well, you know, uh, what do I got to lose, you know? And um, it worked out okay. <laughs> I'd say. Well, once those guys showed up with shotguns, you had a lot to lose, I suppose. Like Rick said, the Chiefs decided to keep you on the team after the strike. Um, do you have any difficult uh, moments sharing the locker room at that point with the players, especially on a team that had been so militant? Well, you know, I, lucky for my my position was punter, so I didn't have to practice, you know, and hit heads and 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 do tackling and all that. I, I remember, I, you know, there was some pretty intense uh, practices right after that when the guys they kept. I do remember that. I do remember some awkward situations that were, you know, but. Um, I, you know, I just think the players back then, I mean, they they were bitter about the replacement players, but I think they were just more mad because they weren't making any money. You know, this was their time to make the money during the season, and it just, and it, you know, they were giving it up. And so, um, you know, once the once the season started and, and uh, you know, it just kind of wore off a little bit. We're speaking with former punter Kelly Goodburn on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at at talkoffamenet. And, Kelly, since you mentioned those awkward situations, obvious question, um, how long did it take before the NFL's inner circle of players stopped viewing you as a replacement player and really started accepting you as a legitimate NFL player? How long before it took them to view you as one of their own? Well, uh, you know, Right after the strike ended, they kept like five of us, five or so, if I remember right. And, you know, one of the questions asked was, are you going to, who's going to be your punter this week? And, and, 
the chief said, well, we're going to stay with our original guys. And so I was like, here we go again, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and um, and then the punter said he was hurt, and he couldn't go. And he goes, you get ready to punt this week against San Diego. And then our head coach came in and said, you're playing Sunday. And um, so I I was the starting – I was the punter the first week back. And I, I think I remember my first punt, I hit it 48 yards out on the seven-yard line. Hmm. I got a few high fives, but not many. <laughs> 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 but I did get some. <laughs> hey, Kelly, I'm just wondering, has there have you felt that much pressure at any other time in your career as that first game? I mean, you really had to prove yourself to the rest of that team and to your head coach. Was that as much pressure as you felt in your career? You know, um, I was really punting well then. And um, – uh, you know, it was, you know, it just, it's, I, I just, I was punting well at that time. And I think that's were some of the reasons why he, coach Gann said that, you know, we're comfortable punting. I mean, I was really punting well and, and then, but I, I ran into a few stumbling blocks along the way on the next two or three games where I thought I had it going. And then all of a sudden I lost it a little bit. And so I had a few shaky moments that first year. You had it going in 1991, but then you were at the Redskins. You wound up winning the Super Bowl that year. Is it almost a fairy tale existence coming from where you were to where you? It were? is. It it is. I mean, it just uh, it's. I've I, you know, I thought it wasn't possible, and and then to have it all work out the way it did when, uh, you know, I I struggled so long to get on the Chiefs team and then I finally did and then I got cut and I thought it was oh this is bad and you know but then I understood it was a business and and uh, was fortunate enough to get picked up by the Redskins and then geez the next year we had a had a wonderful run and and won the Super Bowl It 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 was just unbelievable really I was blessed truly blessed you know had it not been for the strike Kelly and uh and had you not been given that opportunity to, to kick the football and, and have your skills, you know, appreciated, how do you think your life would have changed? Would you, would, you, would you have spent 30 years in a classroom teaching, always wondering what might have happened? You know, that, that, that's a good question. Um, I probably would have. I, I probably would have been a teacher and a coach. Um, yeah. And I look back that, at that um when, when I made it on the team, I kept thinking, okay, if I for every thirty or forty thousand dollars that I make here, it's one less year I have to teach. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but. Hey, yeah, Kelly, I'm, I'm just wondering when, when you hear about the 1987 strike today. Um, it, certainly, as we mentioned, uh, ESPN's done a full-length feature on it on their 30 for 30 what comes yeah. to mind what comes to mind is it is it is it positive feelings or good feelings or, or do you think back of the the turmoil i mean what do you think about when someone mentions the 87 strike well you know i i just i really hate the word scab i i, I yeah. and you know they that's what they titled that but um and then they turned it into a you know these guys all deserve super bowl rings you know and I understand all that, but it, yeah, it it, it was a, a, a unique experience. There was a lot of different individuals there. It was. I remember one time 
it was toward the end. Of course, you never knew. You was always like, okay, strike's over, strike's over. This could be our last practice, right? And I remember we always got on the bus to go to the hotel. And toward the end when it was like, okay, this could be really our last practice, uh, I remember the equipment guys coming in and saying, okay, we're not leaving until you guys bring back your helmets and shoulder pads and toilet paper. And, I mean, <laughs> guys were taking everything. <laughs> hey, hey, Kelly, unfortunately, we're going to have to go, but I tell you what, I love your stories. Thank you so much. Right, thanks, thanks for joining for us. And, you know, guys. well, thanks for the memories, Kelly. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks, okay. Kelly. Take care, thanks, guys. Okay. You got it. That was Kelly Goodburn, punter for the 1987 Chiefs. You covered him, Goose, right? Yes, sir. Good guy. Good guy. Well, he is a good guy, and he was a good guy. Great interview. Up next, it's the two-minute drill, and I'm asking the questions. You're listening to the Talk of Fun Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. A couple of weeks ago, I made a Hall of Fame pitch. Ruben Brown, I did that on this particular program. Ruben's a nine-time Pro Bowl, including eight consecutive seasons, four-time All-Pro, member of the Buffalo Bills 50th anniversary team. And now, now, fortunately, finally, one of 108 preliminary candidates for the Hall of Fame's class of 2018. But guess what? We have Ruben with us. I spoke with him a couple weeks ago on the radio in Buffalo, and now Ruben is returning the favor. So, Ruben, first of all, congratulations on making the preliminary list. And second, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you guys for having me. I'm very happy and excited about the whole thing. Um, I don't know how this nomination works. I just go pick up my yellow jacket now. You're talking to an offensive lineman. You know, anytime someone calls us to say anything positive, we're happy and go crazy. <laughs> well, you can pick up your, your your yellow jacket if you're going down to Georgia Tech, Ruben. But if you want a gold there jacket, you go. you go to Canton. <laughs> there okay. you go. Hey, Ruben, before we start talking Canton, I want to begin by talking Buffalo. Um, a former teammate of yours, and that would be quarterback Jim Kelly, who is a Hall of Famer. Yes. He was critical of LaShawn yeah. McCoy's uh, behavior during last mm-hmm. weekend's anthem. How about you? Mm-hmm. Um, am I critical of um, Jim? No, uh, are you critical of are you were you critical of McCoy's behavior or are you critical of of Jim's response? Uh, you know, I have not um, taken a stance on either one of their positions because you know it's so uh, I say uh, not complicated, but it's attached to a lot of feelings and emotions. Right, right. And I just try to be a person that's going to say things that are kind of uh, I would say. Um, Unifying or mm-hmm. clarifying; those are the two things that I try to say or speak when need, when I want to discuss this particular issue. Um, and I know what I would like to clarify. I think on on um, I think Jerry Hughes made a statement about what Jim did right. during the uh, time that he was on the field, and I think maybe that's the biggest issue here in Buffalo. And I agree with Jerry Hughes because, you know, the team, the owner, and everyone came to a conclusion on how they were going to demonstrate or or show their support. And to have someone not following the protocol or with the rest of the group, it is disheartening. And that does send the wrong message. Um, 
And because the rest of the team was pretty much unified and were in that meeting and discussed what they were going to do. So, Ruben, how is all this playing out in Buffalo? It's very ugly. But, you know, the good thing about it is people, people are talking about what they need to talk about. You know, um, this all started, all of what we're talking about now initiated with Colin Kaepernick saying that there are injustices in the world that we need to address or look at. That's all he did. That's all he said. And from that, now we have a whole thing with desecrating the flag and talking bad, you know, all of these crazy things. Um, and I think we've lost the message that he tried to, um, or people are trying to make it into their message or about them or how they feel. Um, Colin was talking about other people than himself, you know, and I think that's what we should be talking about. That's what we should be focusing on because what would it be if we have cancer or breast cancer awareness month and all we talked about was men's prostate cancer? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. All right. And so yeah. uh, that's where I'm coming from with this. And I know that it's very complicated. I don't know everyone wants to hear opinions from the players, what side you're on. I'm on the side of unity, um, clarity, equality, and love. If you were still playing, Ruben, and faced with this situation, um, what do you think the player, uh, Ruben Brown, would have said? in a team meeting when, the, oh, when everyone's talking about it? I'm not the guy to ask because I was a bad teammate. <laughs> I, was a bad teammate. I did not like the coaches and asking him my coaches. I argued with them all the time. Ask Jim Kelly, Thurman Thomas, Bruce Smith. I fought with them. I actually was in a fight with Bruce. I argued with Thurman. I argued with Jim. Jim and I only became friends after he retired. So, uh, I have a fiery spirit, and that's that's just me. You know, that's that's me. And I was happy to play football because it got a lot of stuff off my chest that I didn't have to carry around in public. <laughs> hey, Ruben, you know, it's funny. I want to interject here where you mentioned that about Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Um, and yeah. the NFL actually is broadening its scope to other cancers, realizing that there are other cancers to be uh, aware of because we're all – uh, in contact with people who've got them or people close to us who've gotten something. Um, so they are going to broaden that. I think uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Month was in October. So anyway, they're, yeah. they're going to broaden that. So um, that's that's something uh, uh, that I think is on the right lines. Anyway, we're speaking with firm, former tackle Ruben Brown on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at Talk of Fame Net. And, Ruben, yeah. let's get to Canton. Let's get to your Canton resume. Yeah. I, I mentioned your credentials when I introduced you, and they're extensive. Uh, nine Pro Bowls, eight consecutive seasons four-time all-pro member of the bills 50th anniversary team um were you ever confounded that you never never made the halls preliminary list there are 108 candidates this year you never made that list before how is that possible i i i don't know uh i never really it never came to the forefront of my i'm not confounded you know i know i'm an offensive lineman or i played offensive line and i know there's not much notoriety and during my playing career i did not have the name of a willie rofe or a larry allen or randall mcdaniel those guys like that who i actually look up to and are my friends so not at all surprised but i'm um 
uh, I'm very happy to know a lot of those names are just names as friends. Nine years Pro Bowl. What have the voters been missing? With me? With yes. You, yes. <laughs> wow, guys, y'all put me on, a, on the spot because, you know, I'm not – I don't really like to talk about myself in, in that manner. Ruben, we're, we're yeah. talking about nine Pro Bowl appearances. What have the voters been missing? I, I guess the voters missing my competition, the guys I played against. And, um, I'm sad to say one of my good buddies and one of my, my um, competitors is no longer around because he was so encouraging to me as a rookie all through my year uh, was Cortez Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I deeply love him, and he and I had an affection for each other. And, and even though we are competitors, and he, he's the only guy to get me for two sacks in a game. You know? <laughs> and, and I've seen him do worse to other guys. And um, I, I really looked up to him and, and he's always he always was very encouraging to me. And in the Cortez Kennedy voice, I say, "Oh, this rude, you need a jacket." <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's what he would say. You know, so uh, I take pride in that because I know who what everybody else thought of him, and you know, he became a friend. How would you, if you were a voter, uh, Ruben, a Hall of Fame voter? How would you go about judging offensive linemen? Because it's sort of difficult, you know, as you pointed out earlier, you don't have stats, uh, a lot of stats and those kind of things. How would you suggest or how would you judge offensive linemen? Um, actually, ask their competitors. They're not going to lie. Ask the other guys that played alongside them. And then go watch the film, you know, because the film at the end of the day, the film was what got me in college. You know, back in those days, they couldn't fly all over the place and find find people. A, a tape was sent, somebody saw it, and they followed and said, that's the guy. And when I got to college, I couldn't get on the field and do my thing until I made, played the game and they watched the tape and they said, all right, he has it. Got to the NFL, they put, played the tape, they saw it, and they said, he has it. So if anyone wants to make a judgment on whether I got it or not, I would suggest just watch the film because that's what everyone else has done in the past. We're speaking with Hall of Fame candidate Reuben Brown on the Talk of Fame Network. And, Reuben, you played with the Bills and went to the Super Bowl with the Bears. How mm-hmm. difficult was it to accept Buffalo's release after the 2003 season? I think they sent you home for your last game. But, anyway, after nine seasons, yes. how, how difficult yes. was that to accept? Oh, man, that was a very ugly time for me. Very ugly time and very tough time. To, to go through because I had kind of, you know, attached myself to Buffalo and I had become very, um, I say, emotional about it and I had a strong passion for trying to get this team to be a winner. Um, and you could talk to my trainer, Rusty Jones. He was in the weight room with me almost every other day and we talked about those things. But I was really down uh set aside because I had watched the, the exodus of Jim first, then Andre, then Thurman, and then Bruce. When you lose those names, you, you wonder where we're going, you know, and, and I took it personal, uh, but I have to thank the Chicago Bears, my man, Olden Cruz, that picked me up, and <laughs> boy, did we have a blast out there, so... Um, and uh, in some ways, thank you, Buffalo. They they grew tired of me, but somebody else um, brought me along for the ride, and I enjoyed it. 
Ruben, you played your college ball at Pitt. You played your pro ball in Buffalo and Chicago. You got something against warm weather cities? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they like me more than I like them. You know? <laughs> uh, I'm not a big fan of Florida. You know, I'm glad I didn't. You know, uh, end up down there. Uh, I just kind of ended up in places that are really similar to what I grew up uh, as a kid, and um, and I think sometimes. Maybe in the back of some of the general managers, they think, well, he's the cold-weather guy, so let's try to keep him in cold weather. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, we know we've, we've talked here what, is, what a surprise it's been to us as voters to not see your name on the list, the, even the preliminary list. And I'm wondering about a couple other guys that you, do, I think, know well. One I know you know well, uh, for sure. And that's uh, Richmond Webb and... Bruce Armstrong, who were both tackles in those days. Neither one of those guys have gotten any mention, any consideration. Uh, Webb to be oh, stunning. You know, uh, what do you think about totally that? I, I, you know, I, it's, it's hard to say because this thing is so subjective. And like you guys, you guys have your opinion, you vote, but it's not all unified. You know, each person from a different era uh, saw something different and left a lasting impression in your brain. For me, both of those guys left lasting impressions, Bruce Armstrong and Richmond Webb. Richmond Webb, didn't he not um, become a pro bowler his rookie season? Yes. Yeah. Is that? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, stuff like that is really uh, surprising to me. I think that in itself is a huge accomplishment by any pro player. Uh, at that time, today it's a little different, obviously. Um, he went to seven straight polls. Yeah, he, he's a, he's a Hall of Famer in my book. I actually wore number seventy eight in college because of him. Um, you know, uh, we I became aware of him when uh, um, Texas A and M played Pitt, and I was choosing to go to Pitt, and I saw him out there. And I was like, man, I want to be like that guy. Ruben, last question. Yeah. Go, go ahead. I was going to say, last question for you, and I'll make this yeah. a quick one. Who's the toughest guy for you to block? Cortez Kennedy. It was my man. That was my buddy. That was my man. That was my number one competition. I looked on that schedule to see if we play in Seattle, man. And, you know, he was the real deal. I could name a, a bunch of other ones. Um, but hands down, Cortez Kennedy, the best three technique, pass, rush, run stopper. Ruben Brown, thanks so much for the time, and best of luck with your bills you, and man. your Hall of Fame candidacy. That was Hall of Fame candidate Ruben Brown. Up next, it's the two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. That's the two-minute well, there's the signal that we're nearly at the end of our first half. So, Gooseman, you have the two-minute drill this week. Take us home. Roger Goodell says he was proud of his league Sunday. How about you? Yeah, I'm proud of my league too, Goose. 3-0 in fantasy football. I'm proud, I'm proud of all the teams except for the three who sat it out. Can't sit this out. Who was more impressive in defeat last weekend, the Lions or the Texans? The Lions made the plays down the stretch to win. Houston did not. The Texans, they immediately beat the team that didn't blow a Super Bowl league. Cleveland has won only one game in its last 22. Are the Browns that bad or the rest of the league that good? No, they're that bad, Goose. The Browns are to the NFL what the Kardashians are to good taste. Goose, man. The Browns lost to the Jets last year and the Colts this year. (laughs) Next question. Carson Palmer 
Arnold Palmer or Jenny Carson? Kit Carson, maker of the Kit Kat bar, owner of the Kit Kat club. <laughs> I'm a card carrying member of the Kit Kat club, but I'm also a member of Arnie's Army. We kneel to no one, including Jack Nicholas. The Jaguars ran a fake punt against Baltimore with a 37-0 lead that gained 62 yards. Genius or classless? I can't believe you're asking that, Goose. It's Jacksonville. Nothing is genius with the Jags. Genius. What are you talking about, Clark? Putting it on film means everyone else has to prepare for it. Speaking of the Jaguars, they now have a three-game winning streak in London. Is Blake Bortles on his way to achieving the same fame across the pond as David Beckham? Yes, sir. In England, there's Admiral Nelson, Churchill, and Bortles. Kirk Cousins shredded Ron's Raiders oh. with his arm last weekend. In his words, guys, how do you like me now? Depends on what it's going to cost me, Goose. Not that much. <laughs> Richard Sherman drew three penalty flags and one play against Tennessee. Is that an NFL record? That will never be broken. No, sir. Vontez Burfick returns to work this week. Jack Tatum drew three penalty flags warming up for the Raiders. <laughs> if you were Giants coach Ben McAdoo, how would you address the Odell Beckham and his touchdown celebrations? I'd have him neutered, leashed, and sent to dog obedience school. If I'm Ben McAdoo, I say keep it up, please. If you were first coach John Fox, how would you address Marcus Cooper's showboat fumble at the goal line after he raced 70 yards with a blocked Pittsburgh field goal? Introduce him to Leon Lett. I'd tell him, don't bother taking a knee because it's time for you to take a hike. That's the end of the that's the end of our first hour, but stay where you are. We have former Giants offensive lineman Jeff Hatch on the opioid epidemic and 1987 strike replacement star Lionel Vitale coming up. You're listening to the Talk Fame Network. This is SB Nation Radio. Tune into the Sports Bosses every day with Jim Rodriguez and Sean Stanley right here on SB Nation Radio from 10 a.m. to noon Eastern. You can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at the Sports Bosses. And make sure if you missed the show to check it out at podcastarena.com. What's up, man? This is KD. I'm 35 for the Warriors. Listen to SB Nation. Follow us on Twitter at SB Nation Radio. And listen all the time at SBNationLive.com. This is SB Nation AM. Uh, bottom of the second inning, Addison Russell chases after a uh, a pop down the left field line and goes into the front row of the seats diving. in St. Lo- Louis diving. And a portly gentleman sitting in the front row had a thing of nachos. I saw that guy. Lost his nachos. And, of course, uh, anytime you talk about nachos, it reminds me of... Well, I guess I should pay my share. Oh, relax, Homer. I keep telling you, you're my guest. Woo, you brought me a nacho hat. Dang, Ned. Nacho, nacho man. Nice. I, I want to be a nacho man. <laughs> Does the nacho hat... From the Simpsons actually exists in real life? I don't think that could exist. It seems quite unsanitary. Every morning, Lynn, Murray, and Solly get you ready for work on SB Nation Radio. 
on Tuesday nights from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. You can get your sports from all angles. Radio host Jason Brennan, longtime agent Dave Meltzer, and New York Yankees legend Jim Leyritz break down sports from every perspective on the Sports Blender on SB Nation Radio. To get more content on your favorite team, you can check out our friends at SBNation.com. They have team-specific sites to fit your needs, whether it's basketball, baseball, NFL, or the school you graduated from. SB Nation has you covered. This is the Sean Salisbury Show. Todd Bowles is a good football coach, but it goes back to the old... You, you give me great players with an average coach, I'm making the playoffs. You give me average players with a great coach, he's getting fired. You give me good players or great players with a great coach, well, then you build a dynasty like the Patriots do. Todd knows this. Unfortunately, he's been dealt an unfortunate hand. He was a great defensive coordinator. He will land a job somewhere. But what a bummer for him that he has to sit there and go through this and lost the locker room. And you know what? For Sheldon Richardson, you know what? He could say all he wants about Brandon Marshall, and, and I get it. You want me to take you back and watch some film on Sheldon Richardson last year and, and around week 13? He wants to keep talking about a guy who quit on his team. You, know, you, you, want, me, you want me to show you some defensive line play and to see the difference between the effort that uh, Leonard Williams put on and some of the other guys on that football team, he doesn't want me to pull that film up. Tune in to the Sean Salisbury Show weekdays from 5 to 8 Eastern right here on SB Nation Radio. This is SB Nation AM. All the time wasted by people yelling at replay, it's not going away. It's here to stay. I thought beepers were like that, Murray. Everything dies eventually. All right, the day replay goes away, you can uh, you can punch me in the face. All right. Yeah. Absolutely not going away. Murray promises. <laughs> anyway. Punch in face. Back. Replay's gone. Poof. Yeah. <laughs> 25 years from now. Every morning, Lynn, Murray, and Solly get you ready for work on SB Nation Radio. This is Game Night with Matt Peralt. Benjamin Albright covers the NFL 104.7 in Denver. Joining us here on Game Night. I am doing fantastic. I don't know about yourself right now, but uh, I am doing great. Just popping open this champagne. You know, the undefeated Patriots have finally been unseated. Uh, you know, hey, hey, look at this. The Patriots, and this is what I think is going on. Bill Belichick is, is, is so anti-Jet that he won't even let them tank better than them. <laughs> Look, I, I didn't want the 19-0 talk. I didn't think the 16-0 talk was justified. I thought it was stupid. I'm glad that it's over early in week one. But which is the bigger story, the play of the Chiefs or the play of the Patriots? The play of Alex Smith, who is like 48 of 61 for 600-plus passing yards, seven touchdowns and no interceptions in his last two games against the New England Patriots. Each weekday night, catch Matt Peralt live from Las Vegas from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern Time on SB Nation Radio. This is Overnights with Jason Gotch. How many teams are going to say, you know what, I better stay away from this player just because this guy's got 35 home runs this year? Maybe the juice baseball had a little bit to do with that. Maybe the statistics for that guy hitting home runs are a little bit inflated. And it'll be interesting to see how many people go after certain players based on that. Tune in to Overnights with Jason Gotch every weeknight right here on SB Nation Radio. This is SB Nation Radio. Tune into the Sean Salisbury Show Monday through Friday right here on SB Nation Radio from 5 to 8 p.m. Eastern. Sean and the Benchwarmers help you get through your drive home, breaking down everything going on in the world of sports. Find them on Twitter at S. Salisbury Show. Hey, this is Drew Brees, and you're listening to SB Nation Radio. Follow us on Twitter at SB Nation Radio, and listen all the time at SBNationLive.com. 
You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Find the show on Twitter at Talk of Fame Net. Here are your hosts, Rick Goslin, Ron Borges, and Clark Judd. Welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network. And this, well, this is an anniversary worth noting. Audio. Yep, this week is the 55th anniversary of Uncle Jed, Granny, and the Beverly Hillbillies. God, I love that cement pond. And since we're all about history here, guys, it's also, yes, also the 50th or 53rd anniversary of Gilligan's Island and, and Gooseman, the 60th anniversary of the musical West Side Story. Well, I'm a bigger fan of West Side Story than I was the Beverly Hillbillies. Really? Gilligan's Island's point. That said, car question for you. Yeah. Marianne or Ginger? Oh, I, I love Ginger. I, I, I love Ginger. I, she could uh, How about she could you, Ron? Oh, Marianne all the way, but man, you cannot beat Rita Moreno in oh. West Side Story. How about Natalie yes. Wood? Natalie yeah. Wood? Natalie Wood? Are you kidding me? The all-time greatest. Oh, Too my skinny. God. On a de- I was on a desert Skinny island, girl. Natalie Wood's number one. Okay, because this is also, Ron, believe it or not, also a football show. It is? Yeah, I want to get your take on East Side Story. Yeah, East Side Story. And ask about what's going on in Buffalo. And we got LaShawn McCoy. He was on our show, what, two or three years ago at the Super Bowl. He didn't Slim want Shady. to. He did, yeah, Shay. He didn't want to stand for the anthem last week. So what does he do? He did calisthenics at one end of the bench instead. And Hall of Famer Jim Kelly, who's a friend of the show and who was there, he criticized him. But then the Bills, Jerry Hughes, came back and criticized Jim Kelly. So, Ron, what in the world has happened to Jim Kelly's freedom of expression? Well, isn't that a big part of this whole problem? You know, everybody's got opin- opinions, and their opinion is really important, and your opinion isn't worth listening to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's kind of what it boils it down to in this case. Look, Kelly can have an opinion. One thing about Jim Kelly that he's got to recognize is he's no longer a Buffalo Bill. You know, he's yesterday's Buffalo Bills. You know, he's not on this team. He doesn't know these guys. He doesn't know what they're what they're thinking or not thinking. He can have whatever opinion he wants, but if he thinks he's not get, not going to get blowback, half those guys don't even know who he is. Yeah, Gooseman, what are you fact. thinking? Well, it seems that free speech is only welcome in this country when you agree with someone else's speech. Ooh, Gooseman with a Goose high man. heat. Anyway. I think we need Officer Krupke to straighten this guy out, guys. <laughs> Officer Krupke. In the meantime. We're going to commercial. I see uh, Robert over there waving his arms. That means uh, we've got an ad coming up. But when we return, we'll start filling out another Hall of Fame ballot. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Hey, I don't know if you guys watched Monday Night Football, but if you did, you're in Dallas, so I guess you had no choice. But if you did... You may have heard Sean McDonough of ESPN refer to Jason Witten as a, quote, unquote, certain Hall of Famer. Um, now, I don't know many people not named, um, you know, Jerry Rice, Unitas, or Montana that are certain Hall of Famers. So I thought I'd take this one to the guys who do know, which is here at the Talk of Fame Network. Yes, we can start with Jason Witten, but I'd like to hear about a couple of others, too. That's Frank Gore and Julius Peppers. Uh, ESPN, Sean McDonough has Larry Fitzgerald. He was on the game Monday. He has him going to Canton, too, but I think, listen um, – I think we all do. Um, so I'm going to leave him alone and, and start with Jason Witten. So, Gooseman, what do you think? Jason Witten, going to the Hall or going to the Mall? There are only eight tight ends in the Hall of Fame, and the best ever, the tight end on the NFL 75th anniversary team, John Mackey, had to wait 14 years to get in. The shortest wait for any tight end was three years. So, Argonzalez, 
Jason Witten and, and Antonio Gates all first ballot. That's what NFL commentators want the world to believe. Slow down, people. Slow down. Gooseman, he's stomping all over that star midfield. What are you doing? <laughs> You're doing a Terrell Owens on that. Come on, Gooseman, take it easy. Hey, Ron, yeah, Jason Witten, he not only has ability – he has durability, and you always say to me, you know, those things are real important. Durability is probably as important, if not more important, than ability. He's got both. Uh, he just keeps playing and playing and playing. You know, I heard what Goose said, but what's to keep this guy out? I mean, is there anything to keep this guy out? Well, you know, I mean, to be fair, you, you know, all, all three of us do a lot of research and work on this to really come to a – Right. Uh, uh, and I haven't been able to do that yet. Uh, but I do think this, you know, I mean, he's obviously the Hall very good, that's for sure, which is, in my book makes you a hell of a player. Uh, but, look, he didn't make the 2000s all-decade team, uh, despite playing eight years of the, in that decade. Uh, Tony Gonzalez and Antonio Gates did. Was he better than those guys? Apparently not, uh, at least in the opinion of the same people who vote for the Hall. So, uh, if not, he's not a certain Hall of Famer, because he wasn't even a certain all-decade uh, all player. Uh, so, I think that McDonough maybe, uh, you know, I don't know. He's on TV, so that explains everything. What do you think uh, Will, Will would say? Ah, he would say, what, are you crazy? Hey, nuts. Get Bavaro in there first. Um, okay, now let's look at Julius Peppers. Um, he plays a position, Goose, that uh, the Hall loves, and that's edge pass rusher. I think we've enshrined nine in the past ten years, including Jason Taylor's a first ballot choice this summer. And Julius Peppers has more sacks than Jason Taylor. He's at 146 and counting, and he's fifth in all-time sacks. Jason Taylor, 139 and a half, and he's finished, and that's seventh. Juice Peppers, a certain Hall of Famer, Goose? Well, you're right. This committee loves pass rushers. And six years down the road, when Peppers presumably will be eligible, the voting board will be considerably younger than it is now and won't have an historical point of reference of a Deacon Jones or a Lawrence Taylor. So if stats alone put a guy in Canton, Peppers is a pretty good bet. Okay. Uh, th- something I should mention, Ron, is the only active player close to Julius Peppers, and he's really not all that close, is Dwight Freeney. He's got 122 and a half sacks. Um, so I, I, I think, um, I mean, I'd, I'd ask you about Freeney, too, except he's really not in right. the conversation. But um, you like you like Pepper's chances? You know, look, he was the second-team all-decade player. As Goose points out, he's got huge numbers. I think if you're, you know, in the top five all-time in, in anything, right. in what you do, you probably belong in a Hall of Fame if they have one. Having said that, and this is going to sound like sacrilege to you push Sean McDonough here says he'll pass out. But, <laughs> you know, I saw the guy play a lot, and I can't remember coming away from many games thinking, Deacon Jones. Yeah. New, De- no, that, new Deacon yeah. Jones. You know? Yeah. I kept saying, I'd like some salt with my peppers. You know I mean? I just, <laughs> but that's I, a high standard to live up to. Well, sure. No question. Hall of but, Fame standard. It's a Hall right, of Fame but, standard. Right. If you're a certain Hall of Famer, it should be certain. And I, I don't well, I don't can't remember leaving a, a, a stadium thinking, I just saw a certain Hall of Famer. Okay. Well, um Let's move on now to, to me, the, the conundrum here. And that's running back Frank Gore. Uh, he's within 49 yards of catching Hall of Famer Eric Dickerson, friend of the show, for seventh on the all-time leading rushers. And he could conceivably catch Jerome Bettis and friend of the show, Hall of Famer Ladanian Tomlinson before the season's over. Now, you mentioned uh, about Peppers, Ron. You never had the feeling that you're looking at a Hall of Famer. I, I sort of had the feeling watching Frank Gore. I, I didn't think I was – Watching the second coming of Ladanian Tomlinson or Eric Dickerson, um, but Goose, how do you ignore those numbers? He's just going to keep piling numbers up. No, there are two pretty telling barometers for the Hall of Fame, regardless of position: rings and all-decade acclaim. Sixty-eight percent of everyone enshrined in Canton has a championship ring. Seventy-two percent of position players selected to all-decade have been enshrined. 
Frank Gore has neither rings nor all decade. Well, you know, he's, he's an interesting case to me because uh, I agree with you, Clark, uh, your assessment of him when you saw him. Having said that, I think of him a little bit, or I'm beginning to think of him a little bit like uh, Jerome Bettis yeah, or, right, or, or right. back in the day, Ollie Matson and John Henry Johnson. Right. Uh, you know, guys who just kept grinding and grinding and grinding, and, uh, and they ended up with ph- phenomenal career accomplishments. And this guy's got those. Uh, what troubles me is, was he better than Ricky Waters? Yeah, right. Was he better right. than Sean Alexander? I Perhaps not. And and I don't hear anybody beating a drum for those guys. So well, it's going to be tough. Well, i got a question for both you guys. Since you asked that one, Ron, and I'll pose this one to both of you. Start with you, Goose. Was he better than Edron James? Edron James was a finalist two years ago. Could be again this year. So Edge or Frank Gore? Everybody is in line behind Edron James. He's the best running back not in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I, I agree totally. I mean, to me, he was much more versatile, more explosive. He did more with less, you know. Uh, of, two rushing titles. Yeah, two rushing titles. Fun. I mean, you know, that guy was, uh, I was shocked at what happened to him last year. Yeah, me in too. In the Hall vote. I don't know what happened. But yeah, didn't even make the finals. A lot of voters that fell off the edge. I don't know what they were thinking. <laughs> okay. Borges or Bogus? Well, speaking of Hall of Famers, no, Ron's not there. Not yet. But he might be, especially with rants like his Borges Bogus. Ronnie, what do you have for us this week? Well, guys, we've reached a new low in American discourse when a man stood tall and had to apologize for it. Steeler tackle Alejandro Villanueva is a former... Army Rangers served three tours in Afghanistan before making it to the NFL. He loves his country and his team, and appropriately in that order. Because of it, he told the Steelers captain Ben Roethlisberger that he could not, in good conscience, stay in the locker room during Sunday's playing of the National Anthem, as the Steelers coach Mike Thomas suggested. And he sought some middle ground. So they agreed that uh, he would go out to the edge of the tunnel, team captains would be behind him, and the rest of the team would be behind them. Well... Villanueva was in the military, so he knows snafus are what they live for. Sure enough, there's a problem. It doesn't happen. He appears to be standing out there by himself. Uh, and he looks bad. Not his fault. But he didn't stand on the 50-yard line making a spectacle of himself. Like you could argue Mike Tomlin, his coach, did when he told the players not to do that. Uh, but what's resulted is misunderstandings deepened. And because there's no hiding from the issues with this growing protest over social injustice has caused. Now, to me, that's not bogus, but it's about time that they started talking about things. Villanueva stood while others knelt. Uh, a right both have because people fought under that flag to preserve Well, meaning as Tomlin may have been, his suggestion to try avoidance was bogus. That Villanueva could not follow uh, him says that uh, says much about him, and none of it's bogus. Feynman are seldom heard from and he likes it that way. But Monday, the poor guy had to explain his actions at a press conference and apologize to Tomlin and his teammates for doing nothing but standing for the national anthem. If as a country we demand that people apologize for that or face the loss of their job for not standing, as President Trump has profanely suggested, we really aren't America anymore. How Colin Kaepernick's decision 13 months ago to take a knee during the anthem as a silent protest against uh, abuse of minorities by police has become an insult to soldiers, the flag, or America is beyond me. It's also bogus. It's a twisting of his intent. And so, instead of anybody listening, everybody's shouting. Which brings me to something that my dad, Joaquin, used to tell me more times than I wanted to hear it. He used to say, boy, God gave you two ears and one mouth to listen 
twice as much as you talk. <laughs> if a man has to apologize for standing for our anthem or is kneeling during it in, in quiet protest of injustice has to be ignored, well, it's time for all of us to listen a whole lot more and talk a whole lot less. Ron, should he have apologized? I don't th- think so. Uh, you know, explaining himself was probably a better way to put it, and I think that's what he was doing. He has nothing to apologize for. Nothing. Yeah, the thing wrong that I think is, is, is a problem here is you said the protest is over social injustice. I'm not really sure what the protest is anymore. I thought the protest last week was uh, over the president's you know, SOB comments anyway. I'm not sure what, what that was all about. But anyway, that's going to do it here. Up next, another replacement player from the 1987 strike, which happened actually 30 years ago this month. It's coming up. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Our next guest, Lionel Vitale, was one of the stars of the 1987 NFL strike games, leading all replacement rushers with 346 yards in three games. His legs helped Washington win all three of those games, which also helped propel the Redskins to an NFC East title and, yeah, their second Lombardi trophy. But almost as important, they also helped him win our weekly readers poll on TalkOfFameNetwork.com, asking which was the best replacement player. And you know what? Lionel won. Anyway, Lionel never played in the NFL before the strike, and he never played in the NFL after. It, but he remained in the league, serving as a scout for several organizations before becoming the director of player personnel for the Atlanta Falcons and more recently the director of college scouting for the Dallas Cowboys. Lionel Vital, thank you for joining us. Hey, good to be here, guys. Hey, Lionel, what were you doing in the fall of 1987 when the NFL went on strike, and how did you find your way to the Redskins? <laughs> good question. I was working at. Um my grocery store that I had just purchased uh, the year before, and uh, I was I was bagging groceries in my little my little hometown of Louisville, Louisiana, right outside of Lafayette, and uh, got a call from Charlie Casley um, one morning, and he asked if uh, I'd be interested in in joining the team as a as a replacement player. With and he said, if you do it, hey, you never know, things can happen. <laughs> <laughs> Kurt Warren wasn't when, bagging groceries with you, was he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I gotta go exactly. try that. Uh, how how right. soon did he call? How soon did he call you? Uh, what do you mean? How soon did he did, call? Did he call you that summer, or when the players went on strike, or how, when did he call you? He called me pre-strike. He called me. He said uh, this thing could probably happen over the next couple of days, and he says just be ready if you're interested. We'd love to have you. You know our system, and he said it'd be a great opportunity. And so, found a little bit, and I said, "Hey, what really do you have to lose?" And right. so, uh, I did it. You know. Now you were you were a seventh round uh, uh, pick of Washington in '86. You got cut by the Redskins. You got cut by the Giants in training camp. At that point, Lionel, did you think, "Well, that's it. The window's closed. I'm I'm moving on with the rest of my life." I had a couple of couple of opportunities from Canada on the table, and my agent said, "Look, let's just stay put." Uh, Calgary had called, uh, Saskatchewan had called, and they wanted to bring me in the camp with them and uh, give it a shot. And my agent said, "No, let's just stay put. You're still young, and who knows what happens." And uh, I stayed put, and the strike came about. 
We're speaking with former replacement player Lionel Vital on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at at talkoffamenet. And Lionel, since you mentioned that strike that came about in 1987, question for you. Was there a moral dilemma for you at all about playing? I mean, you must have known you were going to develop some powerful enemies by crossing the picket line. Well, you're talking about a guy from a little small town, a little small university, who all his life, dreamed about potentially getting a chance to become a, a football player or some type of pro athlete. It's everybody's dream. And you're sitting home bagging groceries, and you get a phone call from a from an assistant general manager of a club, and no way in the world I could say, uh, no, Charlie, I can't do it. Cause it was kind of a no-brainer for most of the guys that did it. You know, had I been on a roster and played for that team two or three years, no, I wouldn't have done that. Would have been no need to. But being an outsider, it was just—it was a no-brainer. Lionel, to, to get the three and zero replacement team needed to go to into Dallas on Monday night, play a Cowboys team four five with some of its biggest stars: Tony Dorsett, Randy White, Ed Tuttle Jones. But you were the best field player on the field that night. Rushed for 136 yards and a 13-7 victory. What did that game tell you about yourself? Well, it just told me if given an opportunity and um, and me being prepared to do it, um, I was just as good as anybody that 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 could have had that opportunity. Um, I had faith in my confidence. Uh, sorry, I had faith in my ability. It's just that. My first year in Washington, I ripped my hamstring off the bone. And it took me about a year just to get confidence into that, um, in that hamstring. It was never an issue of ability. It was just I, was, I could never get healthy enough to, to truly compete. So I never had doubt about my ability to play the game or to run the football. Uh, you just, you know, there was a bunch of people that scouted me. Do the homework. Don't tell you that. Did you, at the end of those three games, did you think, well, this is it. Somebody's going to, I'm staying here, or somebody's going to give me a chance. I'm going to keep playing. And were you somewhat shocked when that didn't happen? Well, um, I was. I, I remained on that roster for, I want to say, another three weeks when the regulars came back. But it was tough. It was tough, you know, running these uh, um uh, running the scout team offenses for the opponents. It was tough getting hit every day in practice and guys taking shots. And then it came to a point where I said, enough. So I spoke with Coach Gibbs and Coach Bukes, running back coach, and I said, hey, I, I really don't need this, man. Um, perhaps if you wave me or whatever, cut me, maybe it's the one who pick me up. And they did. Uh, after I want to say I was there for an additional three or four weeks with the team, and then I was home for about a week, and then I was picked up by the Bills for the final two games of the season, which uh, I did not I did not suit up, but I ended up joining the Bills for the final two weeks of the season, and then I went to camp with the Bills next year. Got cut. That that was. Thurman Thomas's rookie year got cut, and then I uh, went to Canada. Hey, Lionel, and we're speaking with uh, former replacement player Lionel Vitel on the Talk of Fame Network. But, Lionel, as I mentioned in the introduction, that Redskins team 
ended up going on to the Super Bowl and, and winning it. Um, have they or the organization ever acknowledged in any way the role the replacement team played in that Super Bowl season? I mean, do you think you and your teammates should have been entitled to Super Bowl rings? I do. I do. I think, you know, if, if, if you're going to use those three games and count those three games toward you winning uh, your, your division and having an opportunity to go to the Super Bowl, well, then you need to reward the people that help you to gain uh, that distinction of going to the Super Bowl. So, no, uh, we never got that gesture uh, presented to us, um, unfortunately. Did, did you get any acknowledgement? No, 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 it was, no, it did not. Well, you played one more season You played one more season professionally with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders in 89 and won the Grey mm-hmm. Cup as a CFL champion. Two seasons, mm-hmm. two championships. Were those two years enough to convince you that you could indeed play at the next level? You know, I was convinced, guys, that I could play at, in the NFL. You know, it was just bad timing um, with injuries. Uh, I was never really healthy. No making excuse, but just never healthy. It just didn't work out. Um, and I was just fortunate enough when I left Saskatchewan, if I got cut, by the way, after my second year in Saskatchewan, going into my second year in Saskatchewan, um, and then they offered me a job in scouting. And so it, it just all worked out. Um, and, hey, 27 years later, you know, it, it's really worked out for me. <laughs> Did you f- do you feel that you, you were uh, – perhaps some of the reason you didn't get a further chance was because you had been a – replacement player do you think there was some any sort of bias against those replacement players after the fact yeah, i think so i, I really do and i, and I listen I, I try to be brutally honest with with, with, with things when asked because again i have nothing to lose i've always lived my life that way um i think so i i just i i think you know you have that stigma you have that 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 cloud on you and it's tough to to shed and yeah I, but it happened that way, and I'm just grateful that it's turned out the way it has. Hey, Lionel, I want to go back to what I was asking you before about the acknowledgement by the Redskins. You said that they really didn't acknowledge the uh, replacement players. As a brutally honest player or brutally honest man, how does that make you feel? How did it make you feel? Are you, are you bitter about it? Are you angry? Have you just put it aside? How do you feel about that? I'm not bitter because... You know, I've been in the NFL now for a long time and worked in the NFL, so it, it's come at it's come back to me uh, in, in a roundabout way, and I've been fortunate to do this and do this at a pretty high level for a long time and, and, and blessed with, you know, I've had a chance to work with some of the best minds in, in pro football. So I've been fortunate from that standpoint. So I try not to walk around with a bitterness or you know, with the bad attitude about it. Matter of fact, I don't even talk about it. You, I don't think I've held, honestly, I don't think I've held three conversations about the strike uh, since, the, since the last day we played a game. I, I've avoided those conversations. They're sensitive to me, and I just try to stay away from them. And I, I've, I've had people try to call and talk to me, interview, with, interview me about this. And I've, I've, I've rejected them because uh, I 
rather just live quietly and let that be the past. What happened at the grocery store? What happened to the grocery <laughs> We stayed in business for about 10 years. Cool. Uh, it was me and my fiance at the time, and um, we stayed in business for 10 years. And then when I started to hit the road as a scout, it left her at the store uh, alone for the, for the most part. And I just felt like it was just not fair. So we, um, we closed it down. Lando Vital, we've got to do what you did best, which is run. So thanks so much for the time, <laughs> and, and best of luck with the Cowboys season. Thank you, guys. Thanks. You thanks got man. it. That was former replacement player Lionel Vital. Up next, former Giants offensive lineman Jeff Hatch to address the opioid epidemic. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Jeff Hatch is a retired NFL offensive lineman and, yes, and Ivy League graduate. He went to Penn, uh, who's the marketing director for Granite Recovery Centers, the largest network of substance abuse treatment providers in the state of New Hampshire. Third round draft pick of the New York Giants in 2002, Jeff became addicted to prescription painkillers while playing in the NFL and overdosed during his final season in Tampa. He got sober in 2006 He's been active in the recovery community ever since. In fact, uh, he was featured in the 2016 documentary Prescription Thugs, which detailed the pharmaceutical industry's exploitation of addiction and it explored the impact it's had on pro athletes as well as society. And now, well, now Jeff Hatch is going to be featured with us. He's here to talk about what the NFL must do more to protect its players, both from pain and substance abuse. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Well, Jeff, uh, you know, you injured your back your rookie season, and from what I've read, within a year became addicted to, to painkillers or opiates. How on earth does that happen uh, so quickly to a guy like yourself? Well, for my, my own personal story, I would say that, that I, I was a drug addict and alcoholic long before I ever put a substance in my body. So really finding opiates for me was an answer to um, – a problem that was inside of me that, that I was not prepared to deal with at the time. So, um, you know, that, that's, that's my answer to that question. I think that, that the dangers associated with opiates are um, under-publicized, and when you deal with a population of guys that are injured as often as football players are, um, it's one of the things that, that we don't often take a look at just based on the fact that we don't have better solutions at the time. Jeff, you've written that, quoting you, many, if not most, NFL players cope with excruciating pain, and it's easy for them to obtain various painkillers. Is it too easy, and should should the teens be using them less? Wow. You know, it, it's tough for me to say because I look at it like this, and I really I try to be of the mind of what, what was my thought process at the time, right? And, and when you're an active NFL football player, the amount of years that you're able to do that, play on that level, and earn the money you can earn doing it are so small and limited that, to be honest with you, my, my advocation is not so much attacking the active population of players. It's, it's the thereafter and the long term that goes on from retirement age, average age of 25, 26 years old, um, for the, the 40, 50 years thereafter that these guys can continue living and, and making that the best experience possible for them. We're speaking with former NFL lineman and Penn graduate Jeff Hatch on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us 
on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at @talkoffamenet. And Jeff, to follow up on Goose's question, should there simply be a rule, an NFL rule, that if you need a painkiller, maybe a collegiate rule as well, if you need a painkiller to play, you simply don't play? I mean, sort of like the concussion protocols that are now in effect. Oh wow! Um, I feel like my honest answer to that is you have a hard time fielding the team if you put that rule in place. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> we had we had Brett Favre on here. He talked about how he uh, spent a career uh, playing. I think it was Vicodin. I'm not sure what it was, but he had to have painkillers because of a hip injury. Yeah, and, and there's there's myriad stories of, of players that that have have coped with their pain the best way they possibly could while they were playing, so that they could be on the field to do the job that they're paid to do. And and I, I respect that a hundred percent. I wouldn't trade my experience as an active player for anything in, in the world, even as marred as it was by injury and addiction. I mean, it was something I wanted my whole life. It's just the fact that my, my advocation, again, is, is for the thereafter for these guys. It's, it's when that is done, let's get these guys well, get them healthy, and get them active and participating as members of society the best way possible so they don't suffer in silence. Well, you know, Jeff, it's, it's interesting to listen to you talk because I, I think a lot of people – fans and, and others sitting on the outside would hear this and say, no, wait a minute. It sounds like almost like you're advocating for, you know, drugging these guys into uh, into whatever stage they can be into function during football, and then we'll take care of them later. I'm, I'm sure you're not saying that, but it sort of sounds like that. Like whatever they got to do to play, they should do. Well, I, 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 I'm definitely – and I appreciate you saying that I'm not saying – I'm not saying that at all. I, I'm just simply taking a realistic – viewpoint of this situation i mean if i want to really get on a soapbox i'll sit here and say get rid of it all together but but that's not reality and that's not the world we live in and and you know i think it's taken me the years i've taken to to make this kind of statement to get to a place where i feel confident enough to stand in my position and say look if, if you cannot take them and play excellent but i completely understand a young man who is playing in the NFL who has an injury but desperately wants to be on the field doing whatever it takes to be there. I, I understand that a thousand percent. So, again, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not advocating for getting guys on the field any way, shape, or form. Um, all I'm saying is that's the reality. That's what takes place. And let's look at the thereafter in the long term for the health of these guys. Should they loosen up on the marijuana laws, be, uh, rules in the league because of that? A lot of players have told me that, you know, they sort of self-medicate that way, and they feel it's safer than than opiates. Is there some validity to to that? You know, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna refrain from giving an uneducated opinion on that. I don't know enough about the activation of THC and marijuana in the system and how that affects pain and all that. I just am not knowledgeable enough on that to make a statement. Um, so, so I'm going to avoid it. I know there are guys that, that are advocating for that. And, um, you know, I, I, I see minds opening to exploring it as a society in general. And I'm all for increasing knowledge and making educated decisions thereafter on, on all fronts. But I'm not in a position to make an educated statement on that. So I'm going to just refrain. Okay. Okay, Jeff. By, by 25, you were an addict out of football and told you needed a spinal fusion. When was the moment you understood your football career was over and what was your emotional reaction? Oh, wow. So I, I remember my rookie year when the injury first happened, and I went and saw um, the spine specialist, and he looked at my back and said, look, you've got 
all kinds of issues down here, and we really need to do a fusion, and you really shouldn't continue playing ball. And as a 22-year-old rookie in the NFL, third-round draft pick, you know, the future's ahead of me. I, I was just unwilling to accept it at that point. So we did the minimum surgery. We could do the discectomy on my L5-S1 level, and I could continue playing. But I already knew in the back of my mind that at some point my back was going to go. So when it went, I was in Tampa, and, um, I mean, I, it's a memory that's emblazoned in my mind forever of the, the image looking out of that helmet the last time when I was walking off the field after being injured and knowing that when I took my helmet and shoulder pads off that day, it was the last time I'd ever do it. And the fear that I felt and just the, just, you know, any negative emotion you could attach is what I felt at that time. Everything I was was that, that NFL football player and it was gone and I knew it. When you said the fear, you felt the fear of what? The, 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 the thereafter? Absolutely. Absolutely. The fear of being Jeff Hatch without football. Hmm. Huh. Well, just to piggyback on, on Goose's question, Jeff, because um, I did it the first time, I'll do it again. But uh, obviously, we all know we don't have to play it. The football is a, a brutal and violent game, and it ended your career uh, at a very early age. So why does playing this game have such an addictive effect on, on athletes to the point where they put their health at risk and, and become addicts to sustain it, regardless, it seems like, um, of, of a level of education? Wow. That is a giant... <laughs> question you are asking me there, my friend. It's a, that's, a Dar- that's a so Dartmouth question, Jeff. That's a Dartmouth question. Right? <laughs> yeah, that is. It is. It's a great question, too. Why do we put so much value on sports and entertainment in the world we live in? And, yeah. and why do teachers make you know, right, the minimum right. wage? You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's a giant question that, that I, I am not educated enough to answer. I just know the reality and, and that, that that is what it is. And that, you know, for, for thousands of years, we've, we've enjoyed, you know, warrior combat and in the modern era it looks like nfl football and we love it and um you know you get a hero you become a hero when you become a player in the nfl and that feels really good and i think it's it's you'll do anything to maintain that when you're one of those guys because it's it's a becomes a big piece of who you are Interesting. It's it's uh, this is all very fascinating to me. Uh, you know, one of the things I want to ask you about is you know, Toradol. This is something I've talked to a lot of players about. It was a drug originally created for short-term use. If one has suffered you know major traumas, in England they can't you can't even get started on it unless you're in an emergency room. Yet, many team doctors tell me that 15, 20, 25, 30 players lining up in locker rooms across the country every Sunday to get shot up with it. Uh, uh, what is your feeling on Toradol in particular? Did you ever use it yourself? Uh, and, Absolutely. Uh, I was one of those guys in that line every week. Um, did, and, and, again, it, it, it feeds back into that, that, that same answer from before. In, in other words, you know, you'll do what you need to do to be on the field in the best shape you can be to be out there and in the least amount of pain you can be while it's going on. And I found Toradol to be extremely effective. And, um, again, I, I just – didn't see many other opportunities for me to earn the money I was earning weekly in the NFL doing anything else. So it sure did make sense to me at the time to do whatever I had to do to be out there to play. Did you ever have second thoughts? I mean, when you're standing in that line, uh, you know, you're, you're an Ivy League educated guy. I mean, you must have had some idea what you were putting in your body. I mean, did you just standing in that line at all ever think, this is supposed to be for a guy in a train wreck or a plane crash? Did it ever cross your mind at all that this is nuts? 
or no? Uh, I think I think probably that the, that that whisper was always there, mm-hmm. but you you don't step out on an NFL football field and and do what you do out on that field against the athletes you do it against unless you're 100 percent bought in and committed to that. You know, so those little whispers, I, I shut those down as quickly as possible and just focused on the moment and and got ready the best way I could to be on the field. And I think every guy would say the same thing. Mm-hmm. Jeff, what should the NFL and the NFL PA be doing to help players and former players? And are they doing enough for you guys? I think that we need to look at more of a comprehensive addiction treatment protocol for retired players. Uh, if, if you look right now, what's available is about eight weeks of outpatient counseling, if you ask for it. Um, there's nothing on through the trust or the NFLPA website that directly links to addiction treatment services. There's suicide stuff, there's depression stuff, there's anxiety stuff. I would just like to see a much more comprehensive approach taken to facing this addiction crisis among that population of guys. Hey, Jeff, last question for me, but is this a growing crisis, do you think, that's going to someday come down the NFL sort of as the concussion epidemic did? That's a great question, and I, I do not have um, – I don't have a look into the future to say, uh, but what I can say is, is we're missing an opportunity to, to help guys that at one point we're all, we're all heroes to a population of people, and a lot of them suffer in silence for no reason other than the fear of – exposing themselves and, and saying, hey, I have a problem, which, to be honest with you, is, is, is just such a, a, such a big piece of addiction as a whole. And, and I just see those guys as guys that can be such leaders among our population, and, and we're missing helping them, and it's something we should do. Hey, Jeff, we're going to have to get going, but uh, thanks so much for the time. And no disrespect, but here's hoping the Quakers lose to my alma mater this weekend, okay? <laughs> Go Dartmouth. That's it. I just want to put in a plug there. You're in New Hampshire. Go Dartmouth. <laughs> Every time they play, we put him on Toradol. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I love it. I love it. I love it. Hey, Go Jeff. All the way. Yeah, oh, Jeff, thanks so much. Really appreciate you joining us. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you all so much. Thank you bye. got it. That was former offensive lineman Jeff Hatch, who was a third-round draft pick, believe it or not, of the New York Giants in 2002. Up next, it's Rick again with the two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is Jeff Hatch, retired New York Giant, and you're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Well, that means we're nearing the finish line, so Goose... Do your best Tom Brady impersonation, if you can. It's going to be tough, Goose. But take us down the field in two minutes. Is Cam Newton still reeling from that Super Bowl loss 19 games ago? No, sir. He's still reeling from that NFL play 60 ad when that kid told Cam he could be his backup. He's reeling from shoulder pain, which is a lot more daunting. Colts receiver T.Y. Houghton fancies himself as Superman. What do you fancy him as? Jimmy Olsen. Hotel spokesman. Kareem Hunt, Helen Hunt, or the Hunt for the Red October? Lamar Hunt, former owner of your favorite team, Gooseman. Hunt for Red October. I need a good book to read. <laughs> Five NFL teams have run the ball more than they've thrown it this season. Are ground games making a comeback? No. A bad quarterbacking is. Exactly. They're running it only in places where quarterbacks are hazardous to their own health. 
What was a worse moment for the Patriots, Spygate or selling tap water to their fans? Selling toilet paper, one sheet at a time. Tap water for cash in 80-degree heat made the crafts look like drips. <laughs> Who will draw more paying customers this season, the San, Antonio, San Diego State Aztecs or the relocated Chargers in Los Angeles? Be the Aztecs. Better team, better city. I'd say the Chargers, but only because they're going to play more games. Linebacker Vontez Burfecht is back this week after serving a three-game NFL suspension for a preseason hit. Can he save the 0-3 Bengals? Not unless he can save himself first. I would say no, but I'm sure he's going to cost them and himself at some point. Andrew Luck is expected back at practice for the Colts this week. Can he save the 1-2 Colts? Not unless he can block. Practice? We talking about practice. We need him in the games. Practice. Russell Wilson says there's no panic in Seattle despite their 1-2 start. Should there be? Nope. Look at the division, Goose Man. Who's going to beat him? Why panic if you're living in Seattle? You've always got the Sounders. Oh. Randall Cobb, Ty Cobb, or Randall Tex Cobb? The Sounders? What about the Portland Timbers? Come on. Cos Cobb, Connecticut. Train stop for Steve Young's childhood home. Tex Cobb, who once when faced by a bunch of guys in a bar room holding bats, said, I hope they're a softball team. They weren't. That's the end of the game. We want to thank Reuben Brown, Jeff Hatch, Lionel Vitale, and Ed Boucher for joining us, Robert Harris Jr. for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, talkoffamenetwork.com, or dial us up on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us at this time and on this station next week. We'll be here, and we hope you will be too.